This weekend in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg, you can see my guest Jennifer Dale in the romantic drama Into Invisible Light. It's a film that asks, what would you do if you had a second chance in your life? Jennifer Dale, welcome. Thank you, Richard. Nice to see you. You too. Congratulations on this. Thank you. <laughs> this movie is a, a movie for adults. This is a movie for people that that have lived a life and uh, perhaps will have a chance to to start all over again. And that's something that you don't see that often in movies. Normally, we see kind of the end of a life or the the the, the result of a life. We don't see people sort of kick it up again and, and start all in over process. again. Well, you know, I believe that life conspires to give us second chances, no matter how much we thwart them, <laughs> no matter how we self-sabotage ourselves. Uh, you know, th- these are characters who have a lot of miles on them. Mm-hmm. And um, we created this character um, because the director and I, Sheila Carter, um, we had worked together as um, in, in when she was going through the, the director's program at the Canadian Film Centre. Right. And we worked on a short film that she did called One Night. And we realized very quickly that we spoke the same language in terms of how we worked and the passion that we shared for the, that kind of work. And we wanted to create something more substantive than a short film. And so... We talked a long time about the kind of character that we wanted to create. Uh, We talked about the films that inspired us, the performances of older women that inspired us. We were creating a character for me that would be ideal for me to play. And we we hit on this notion of... um, the, the Chekhovian uh, character, Yelena, from Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. Sheila had asked me if there were roles in the theater that I had played or wanted to play. And that was a role that I, I never played formally, but I worked on it in acting classes right. at one point. And there was a character who, she was obviously a person of hidden depths. She appeared on the surface to have everything, married to an older man, very well taken care of. Uh, but the characters around her saw her as sort of insubstantive and not really worth much or doing much with her life. And, of course, that is the, the Chekhovian thematic through line of so many of those plays that you know, the greatest sin and immorality in Chekhov is about not fulfilling your it's, potential. It's the waste, yeah. It's the wastefulness of our life. So we we thought, let's try and take this character and put her into a modern context. So this is how we created our Helena, um, who is a recent widow mm-hmm. and um, by chance also happens to run into an old lover that she had been involved with 25, 30 years earlier, uh, around the time that she had met her now deceased husband. So she's through two um, avenues of circumstance. She is brought to this moment in her life where she is forced to look at the past and examine the choices that she made there and she really is being given another chance to do something different. This is a person who who feels herself estranged from herself, uh, living an inconsequential life, uh, like an incidental character in her own life. And um, her husband has left her 
this strange caveat in well, his and, will. And this is where I, I thought the, the story was so interesting because what it suggested to me is that uh, her husband knew that she was unfulfilled. Her husband knew that there was this gap in her life that needed filling somehow. And in his will, and I've never, maybe, maybe this happens, but in the will, he says, essentially, here's a bunch of money, but you don't get it unless you start writing, unless you start creating, unless you start, you know, filling that, that hole that, that I've always known was there. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you, you see that. In fact, to me, that's what the title of the film mm -hmm. is. It, it, comes from and implies into invisible light that he has gone. He's invisible, but the light that he's shedding on her life now right. is is ever present. And it's not that he's specifically said you have to write. Mm -hmm. What he's done is a little more clever. He has put her in charge of a foundation. Yeah for young artists where she has to decide who is going to receive the grants. And she feels completely unworthy to this task because of this weight of guilt and remorse that she has carried sort of semi-consciously for having abandoned her own younger hopes and dreams of being a writer. So she's thrust into this world of having to deal with painters and sculptures and dancers and writers and people that she feels unequal to. Yep. And of course, we know that you can appreciate art without being an artist yourself, but that's not enough for her. And so she al also, because she's re-met this previous lover who is a, a, a writing teacher of literature in university, she takes up this challenge mm -hmm. to try and write again. And the writing becomes a kind of act of self-preservation and reinvention of herself. It forces her to examine choices in the past and, and brings her to a moment where she finally finds her own voice again. And it's not that she becomes a great writer yeah, suddenly. Yeah. It's just a person trying to discover whether they can begin again. I'm speaking with Jennifer Dale. The film is called Into Invisible Light. You can see it in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg this weekend, and then I'm sure it will expand across the rest of the country uh, in the coming weeks. I think that the message of this movie and what you've just said is so potent because so many people have artistic ambitions when they're younger, and, and they are unfulfilled. It's really hard to make a living as a dancer, as a writer, as an actor. And we'll talk about your journey in that <laughs> a, a little bit later on in the show. But it's a tough way to make a living, and it scares people off sometimes. But I do think that, you know, you can write for fun and learn about yourself and, and, and find untapped avenues of emotion and whatever else uh, within you that you didn't know were there, but you have to explore them and you have to take the time to explore them. Absolutely. You know, the poet Mary Oliver, who died mm -hmm, last just recently, week, great yeah. American poet, uh, because I've been reading so many things about her in the last week, I saw something that spoke so resonantly to the theme of this movie, too. She said that the most regretful people in the world are those who have felt their creative power restive and uprising and who have never given it the power and right. time that it deserves. And that's what so many of us, you know, have done. Um, or we've, we've started and we've failed. And 
so we we think that we're done, right? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, in my own life, in my own attempts to to write, I mean, I I love the collaborative process. I love collaborating with someone else on a screenplay, and I I have made many attempts over the last twenty years to do that with other writers and directors. But this was the first time with this film that I was actually able to bring it to fruition. I think we learn as much from failure as we do uh, from our success. And sometimes I think you learn more from something that that goes a little south than you do from... We we even have a character in our film, the character played by Peter Callahan. Mm -hmm. He plays this writing teacher and a beautiful scene that he has with his daughter, who is an aspiring dancer. He tells her, he he quotes Beckett to mm-hmm. her. She says, who's Samuel Beckett, <laughs> right? She's like 17 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Beckett's quote, fail, fail better, yeah. right? And we're so afraid of that. But, I mean, what else are we here for? Well, I think that if you look at the width and breadth of anyone's career, it can be summed up into fail or fail better or you know, fall down six times, get up seven. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is, that is, I think, applies to all facets of life. But I think in uh, an artistic life, I think that is a very potent message. Yes, and and this this idea that that you never know where the next opportunity is going to come mm-hmm. from. How, just, I love it how life does conspire to force you to to reexamine those things. I believe also that people's hopes go on forever, mm-hmm. right? Even though we tell ourselves, you know, it's hopeless or I'm done, I'm abandoning all hope, I don't think that in our secret hearts we ever do. And so life does these things to us where it, it even, even in challenges that look like they're terrible or, you know, they're full of grief or pain, to, to be able to find the gift in those moments and what they're calling us to is also what this film is about. On, on a different note, and uh, I will, I will, we're almost out of time here, but it's interesting you say that five years ago I had cancer, and it's all, it's, we're all good now. We knock wood. It's all oh. good. But the worst thing that ever happened to me turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me reexamine everything in my life from work to my personal to everything uh, and look at it in a different way and in a way that I had never even considered before. Absolutely. Thrust upon you and and you either rise to it or you don't. And we never know how much time we have left exactly. and what we're going to do with that time. And whether it's a week to, you know, yeah. <laughs> a month, yeah, yeah. a year, 20 years, we have to try. We have to continually try to lift ourselves up. I'm speaking with Jennifer Dale. The film is called Into Invisible Light. You can see it in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg this weekend. It will open further across the country uh, in the coming weeks. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. In studio, Jennifer Dale joins me. We're talking about Into Invisible Light. Uh, It is the story about finding a second chance in your life. Uh, This film happens to be centered around people who are artists and and dancers and writers and people of a certain age who are are reigniting a passion for something that was always there but but had been snuffed over time. Uh, But it's not just about artists and writers and dancers. It could be about anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody, I think, particularly people of, well, our age, um, come to this 
you know, uh, crucible moment in their lives when they they are re-examining choices that they made. At one point in the film, uh, my character asks, "Did you ever feel that your life just veered off somewhere mm-hmm. and you don't know how it happened, what what where it went?" And I think that we all, you know, look back on significant turning points and think, "What if I had taken?" the other road. Right. What what if you know what might have happened if I had done something different? And that's a big theme in this film and we all ask that of ourselves. Have you ever asked that? Have you ever said what if I hadn't oh, been absolutely. acting since I was <laughs> 1 year old? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I, I you know I never trust people who who say that they have no regrets. Like that <laughs> song by Edith Piaf. Right. I don't buy it. I mean, how do you get to be this yeah. age and not have regrets, yeah. not look back and say, God, if I'd only done this or not done that, and what might that have meant for somebody else or for me? And right. and that's what this character is doing. Don't we all do that in our life? I mean, at, by this point, I think we're all doing that. Well, I, I had this sort of idea for a while that life was just a buildup of regret, you know, <laughs> just like there were the building blocks of everything. That came. Now, I, I've softened that a little yeah. bit. I don't think it's just regret. But, but you can't look back uh, uh, without seeing certain things that you wish you had done or handled differently or whatever i mean no one no one walks through this unscathed no and and but of course the 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 other um you know facet of regret is is um atonement in mm-hmm. a way or forgiveness right and that that's also what this movie's about it's about forgiving yourself for for having uh sold yourself short it's about forgiving somebody else that you've you've blamed or carried resentment for for not having appreciated you yeah, right yeah. it's it's forgiving yourself for not having recognized when you were younger what was good for you right and so as in this movie where she's given this second chance uh she now is able to hear the same kinds of critical things from somebody older who she once loved, right. who said them to her when she was younger, but she's able to receive them in a different way now and use them constructively. In the same way, she's able to take this challenge from her dead husband and realize that if she doesn't bring forth what is in her, she's not going to be able to do for others right. what she is expected to do. Do you think that Part of that is that when you're in your 20s, you think you know it all anyway. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And when people tell you, well, you know, the best move here is. Yes. And I know certainly I thought I knew everything Me when too. I was 20. Me yeah. too. God, it's, it's embarrassing, isn't it, when you look back? <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm speaking with Jennifer Dale. The film is called Into Invisible Light. It's playing in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg uh, this weekend, and will open wider across the country uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, this is uh, a story of, we, we've talked about um, regret, we've talked about that, but it's also a story of forgiveness. And yes. I think that's a, a very crucial kind of element in all of this. Absolutely. Um you know, you can't move forward mm-hmm. in your life if you carry resentments from the past. And, you know, my character at one point, after she's had this first encounter again, first second encounter again with this man that she once loved, and they're out on the street, and 
she says to him, uh, well, I feel like a curse has been lifted yeah, yeah. because she's carried this thing forever without even really understanding it, right? And as we do. So, yeah, forgiveness is very, very important. Could you have written this when you were 30? Uh, absolutely not. No. No. And in fact, the process of writing it with Sheila, I mean, we things take as long as they take. They yeah. take what they, the time <laughs> that they need to be born. Yeah. And Sheila and I started writing this uh, around 2010. Oh, wow, wow. And, and it took us a couple of years. We were in different cities. She's from Winnipeg. I'm in Toronto. We were telling each other stories about our own lives, about women that we knew, stories of our past. We were looking at the performances of actresses that we loved, p- p- characters like Tilda Swinton's role in I Am Love, yeah. and uh, w- which was about a woman's revolution, right? Uh, personal revolution and uh, Kristen Scott Thomas in in uh, I've loved you for so long yeah. and uh, Juliette Binoche in Certified Copy. These roles of women who are examining themselves at a at a later point in their life and needing to change and and we started writing it and. Then we were sending each other scenes and collaborating, trying on this, trying on that. And it took us a couple of years. Finally, we had a script. And then, of course, we each got involved in other things. Life gets in the way. Life gets in the way. And it had to go on the shelf for some time. And we just left it there. And at the same time, I was working for uh, different film companies doing um, coverage analysis of screenplays, which was a very so what that means is, thing yeah, to so, me. So that means that they send you a script and say, what do you think? You read it and essentially break it down scene by scene and say, I yeah. didn't believe the characters or I did right. or I what. And, and, and it's, that's what a coverage thing for people. Right. Don't know. And, and the viability of it for the right. particular company and why they would or wouldn't make it and what an audience might That's appreciate. like going to writing school right there. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I was doing that a lot throughout several years after and I was reading things and I was thinking, but I've got this thing sitting on the yeah. shelf and it's just as good and better than <laughs> this, what I'm reading. And so I called up Sheila one day and I said, you know, hon, we really have to make this movie. Now let's take another look at it. And we'll pick up the story on the other side of the break uh, of how Into Invisible Light went from sitting on the shelf to the big screen. And if you're in Toronto, Vancouver, or Winnipeg this weekend, uh, you can see it in any of those cities. And then check your local listings in the coming weeks. uh, It'll be playing on a screen near you very soon. Uh, We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with more Jennifer Dale. Stay with us. Welcome back. Jennifer Dale is in studio. We're talking about Into Invisible Light. Uh, It's her new film. It's playing this weekend in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. Uh, It's a story of second chances. It's a story of forgiveness, the revitalizing power of art. And uh, we've been talking about how it made its way from your head onto the page, onto a shelf where it sat for a couple of years. And that sort of gets us to this (laughs) point where you've been reading other scripts and said, I've got one that's just as good as any of these. Absolutely. Now, of course, we know that it is an 
ultimate miracle if any yep. movie ever gets yep. made anywhere, no matter what the budget. Two hundred no million dollars or two no million dollars doesn't matter. Connected to it, you know, seeing a, a few weeks ago Glenn Close winning her Golden yep. Globe and talking about the twelve years that yep. it took to make. The wife, yep. because it was called the wife. That's, that's right. one of yeah. the things she said. But it, it is a miracle that films get made. So we took it off the shelf and then really applied ourselves to our miracle. And it took us two years from that point of reworking the script, uh, pulling together the team, pulling together the cast and the funding. And of course, you know, we made it. For not a lot of money, and I, I like to—I always like to say—we made it with passion. That's ab- absolutely <laughs> passion and flying by the seat of your yep. pants. You know, in the way that when you don't have certain resources, you know, I remember we lost a major location yep. three days before we were supposed to be shooting for five days in this location, which forced the director, God bless her, to completely rethink. Entire sequences of the film. And, well, and this, I think, is kind of the magic of being a director. Terry Gilliam told me one time that in the Holy Grail movie, his original plan was just to have King Arthur and his men come up over the crest of a hill on horseback and look at the castle, and then there would be a funny scene after that. But the horses were going to cost uh, $12,000 or something like that, and he only had a million dollars to make the whole movie. So he said, I can't afford that. What am I going to do? So he put them all on broomsticks and had someone walking behind them with coconuts going clump, 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 clump. And he said, now it's the scene that everyone remembers in the film because it's so absurd. But if he had had money, if he had more time, no one would remember it. Right. Exactly. The king on horseback, big deal. So, you know, in our film, I mean, in the script on the page, we had these long sequences of her wandering through this mansion that she lived in, right? Married to a wealthy man, but feeling like vulnerable and, and, you know, inconsequential. And we didn't have a house. (laughs) We we had a place where we had literally like two walls that we could use and set something up like a bedroom. And... So we had to reimagine whole sections of the script that then became a sort of interior landscape of the transformation of her grief and her writing life. And I I didn't even know really what was happening from one minute to the (laughs) next. I just had to trust Sheila and trust the story and the work that we'd done in rehearsal on the character. And she would just say, okay, this is going to be, we're, we're, this is what, this is happening right, right now and go and this is it. And, you know, you, you do what you can. I think that, that having a, a modest budget also forces you to work from instinct. It forces you to work from the gut, which is exciting. I think it's exciting in the moment. And, and I can generally feel it on screen when someone is working, you know, at a high level instinctively, it feels different. It looks different than it does in a, maybe if you'd had the big mansion and the luxury of doing 97 takes of you walking down a flight of stairs, it feels different than if you have to improvise and do it once right? and, and of, get it right. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, of course you're working instinctively, especially when, you know, in low budget film, you're probably only going to have two or yeah. three takes yeah. at most ever anywhere, right? But, I mean, that said, too, for Sheila and I, it was also very important to have a rehearsal process right. with our other actors. And because it is, it is, and I'm not 
apologetic about it, but it is a kind of slightly wordy script in places. People are talking to each other. Yep. They're talking about things and thrashing things out. Yeah, and there's so, ideas yeah. on display in those words. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's very elliptical in that sense, too. So we're, we, we needed that process of rehearsal to get at certain things because you don't have time on set to yep. thrash those things out, right? And so you take a couple of weeks beforehand. And I think, I mean, I, I got the sense that uh, you knew a lot of the actors anyway, but if you don't... No, I, mean, I the, did, well, I did know uh, everyone. Um, right. I, I had never worked with uh, Stuart before, but I, I certainly, I knew Carrie Matchett, yeah. uh, who I adore, and yeah. Peter Callahan. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story about Peter Callahan. Uh, Peter, as you know, is a wonderful comic actor, and and he also often gets to play kind of smarmy characters, right? So this was a big departure for him, playing really the the romantic leading man, Mm -hmm. Uh, however much certain women actually hate him in this (laughs) role, what what he represents. I don't, but... um, I had done an episode of Made in Canada with Peter, uh, going back, I must be about 18 years ago now that we did that. And in the episode, I played his ex-wife. He was the head of a television network. And we had this scene uh, of having sex on his desk in his office which I completely forgot about. (laughs) Or did you blank it out of your... (laughs) (laughs) No, he reminded me of this when we were working together on the film. And I said, gee, Peter, I totally forgot about that. He was devastated. I'm sure he he was. It was one of the greatest days of my working career. I'm I'm sure it's a story he's told. You know, Jennifer (laughs) Dale and I, we... Wow. Uh, well, th- th- that's also a great way to, uh, if you didn't like him, level the playing field <laughs> no, right there. No, I do there. love him. I think he's wonderful <laughs> and he's marvelous in this film. The film is called Into Invisible Light. It's playing in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg this weekend. Check your local listings in uh, the coming weeks. Um, what do you hope people take away from this film? Uh, well, I guess the things that we've been talking about, just the notion of... of beginning again, mm-hmm. under, knowing that it's never too late, yeah. um, and that, uh, what? Do you think that these ideas are more acceptable now? Uh, there has been a change in the kinds of stories that we're seeing and we're, we're, we're being told. Uh, this is a story of, you know, a, a, a woman uh, starting all over again that might not have been made. 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, for me and for Sheila, uh, my director too, uh, I'm sure that our our feeling about time's up is more about ageism than anything else, right? right? Um, Because it, it does not, what we see in the culture, what we see in movies, it doesn't mirror the reality of who women are as they are getting mm-hmm. older now. I mean, women now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s are are more beautiful, more empowered, more wise, uh, more talented than ever before. And to deny that and not be representing those women in the stories that we tell. This just doesn't make any sense. So, And we've been being told for years that 
the baby boomer generation would yeah. want to see those their stories represented. And so this is what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. People want to see themselves reflected on screen no matter what the no, – no matter who they are. Right. And, and for many years, it was suggested that women couldn't carry a film. No one would go see a film, you know, only starring a woman or a woman's story. Of course, some were made, but, but fewer than you would think. Yes. And, yeah. and no matter how long it takes, I, and even though I'm late to the game in <laughs> – in being a, a co-writer on yeah. something, I'm not feeling that that's it. Well, I did that. Right. I'm I'm still dreaming and believing that there's more to come. In fact, I'm collaborating with some people now on a project uh, with a lot of forethought because we know how long it takes. Yeah, yeah. In which the character that I'm going to play is actually a hundred years old. <laughs> so. <laughs> Lots and lots of makeup will be required. Yes. Uh, Jennifer Dale is my guest in studio. Into Invisible Light is the name of the of the film, playing in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg this weekend. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about some of your stage work, some of your other work, uh, because while we talk about not always having great roles for women in film, leading roles, on the stage, it's a different thing. Stay with us. More with Jennifer Dale when we come back. Welcome back. This weekend in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg, you can see Jennifer Dale star in the romantic drama Into Invisible Light. It's a film that asks, what would you do if you had a second chance in your life? We've talked a great deal uh, about the film, uh, about the empowering aspects of it, um, and, and the importance of art, all that sort of thing. But I'm really fascinated by your career. I mean, you, you stepped on stage professionally for the first time at the Royal Alexander Theatre, not far from where That's we're sitting right. today, uh, in 1965. It was the year that Honest Ed Mervish bought the theatre. That's right. So it was a big deal. The place was kind of falling apart. He bought it and revitalized it. And uh, you played Baby June in the musical Gypsy. That's right. And you you were just a child. What, what made you think that you wanted to be on stage? My mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took my <laughs> it took my sister Cynthia and I years and years uh, into our adulthood to fully acknowledge the fact that we had a stage mother, but we did. Yeah. And I don't regret that. Did she have a theatrical background? Had no, she been she on stage? Did not. No. She was living through us vicariously, yeah. her dreams of that and um, and she was our great inspiration mm -hmm. for that when we were younger, you know, from, we started dancing and dancing classes from the time we could barely walk. And by the time <laughs> I was eight years old, I was auditioning for that part at the Royal Alex. And then my beautiful young mum was meeting all these dancers and actors who were telling her kids how to get into the business. Right. And, uh, that's how we started. Do you remember being on stage at eight years old? Do you oh, remember absolutely. the feeling? I totally remember yeah. it. Remember it. I remember it, yeah, acutely. And absolutely. It, it, it must have been a rush. It was incredible. Yeah. I remember... I remember standing in the wings uh, with the the opening, you know, music yeah, of yeah. the overture. I remember, I remember hoping that the the girl who was playing the older June would something would happen to her so I could take over her role and go on. I was learning her part from in the wings, you know, a little all about Eve there right, at eight yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah. I, I remember lying up in the 
the rafters, you know, in the on the third floor so, of the Royal Alex and watching the rehearsals going on down below. I, it was, yeah, very vivid to me. And so you were going to school during the day probably, right? And then, and yeah, then in and out working of school. at night? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Grew up in the business and then went to the National Theatre School mm-hmm. when I was 18 years old and before I even graduated was asked by Robin Phillips to join the Stratford Festival. And Robin Phillips really changed things for you. And I have somewhere here a great quote from you um, that it said essentially that, that he helped you with your understanding of acting. Oh, yeah. You knew that you wanted to be an actor, and you were yeah. acting, and you had done it for 10 years probably yeah, at that I point. Was, I was posing. I was, right. You know, I remember doing a, a scene study with him of the Strindberg play, Miss Julie, mm-hmm. and he just tore me apart right. to shreds. I mean, not in any way that I couldn't handle, yep. but he really took me apart and, and showed me to myself how, what I was what I was doing, and taught me a whole new way of working. And when we were doing that workshop with him, uh, I was also working with Maggie Smith wow. and Martha Henry, who wow. were you one know, of the legends of Canadian actresses stage. Yeah, in their yeah. 40s in the company in those days. And of course, it's wonderful, full circle, mm-hmm. because I've got Martha Henry playing my mother-in-law yeah, yeah, in, in, in the film, Into Invisible Light. Um, so, yeah, working with Robin was incredible, and I did those two years at the Stratford Festival, and then I left and came back to Toronto and met Robert Lantos, my ex-husband, and starred in a f- couple of films with him that he produced and uh, and did not do a lot of theatre for many, many right. years. But did then, you miss it when you weren't doing it? Yes. Yeah. And then sometime around my, my uh, early 30s, mid-30s, I became obsessed with the character of Eleonora Duse, who was, as, do you know who Duse? No, I don't know oh, who that is. Oh, Eleonora Duse was the rival of Sarah Bernhardt, oh. the younger Italian rival. Right, right, she right. was the actress who Stanislavski was looking at and saying, that's what I'm talking right. about. Right. He, while he was codifying his method system, that she was his great example. She was, she's known as the mother of modern acting. She right. was really the first person that started to uh, explore the interior world right. of creating a character from interior states. And I became obsessed with her as a character. Also, I am half Italian. Mm-hmm. You know, my real name is Cherluini. Yeah. I was is... wondering how to pronounce that. I'd, I'd seen it written, <laughs> yes. but yeah. And I've studied Italian for many, many years. Anyway, I, I went to Italy to research her as a character, found this play in Italian, which I then had translated in Toronto and then readapted and did that one-woman show about Duse. Um, and that was in 2004, sort of went from doing no theater yeah, to yeah. doing a 90-minute one-person play. About the woman who invented modern exactly, acting. <laughs> which was no a, pressure a there. huge challenge. But that was something where I realized a dream and got it out of my system. Right. Right. Um, but I was still obsessed with her as a character and tried for years to do other projects around her, but only succeeded in uh, creating a short film with somebody that we did about her. And then, you know, the other thing I love about this business is you never know what could be right around the corner, even yeah. if you haven't worked for months and think you'll never work again, as every actor does. Yep. And I had the opportunity in 2015 to audition for 
a crazy role in a play called Vanya and Sonia and Masha and That's Spike, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which had been a great hit on Broadway, Christopher Durang play, and won the Tony Award. And then every, uh, you know, regional theater in North America did a production yeah. of it. So I was in this production with, um, with Fiona Reed and... Uh, it was a co-pro between the, National, the, the Manitoba Theatre Centre and uh, the Mervishes in right. Toronto. And that was the last time I was on stage. Right. Um, it, the, talk about the film work a little bit. Uh, uh, the movie The Banshee with Peter O'Toole. Tell me about working with Peter O'Toole. I met him once and I was absolutely gobsmacked by this man. He told me the funniest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> he was uh, outrageous and charming and like I could I wish that interview had been 24 hours long I could have spent days talking well I believe that but I I also I'm sorry to disappoint you because Peter O'Toole chose and it was not a movie it was actually an episode of the Ray Bradbury series that's right the Ray Bradbury series called The Banshee And it was he was playing a kind of a John Huston esque film director yeah. character who was holed up in this uh, Irish mansion with a screenwriter, uh, Charles Martin Smith. I think, Charles Martin Smith from American role. Graffiti That's and is right. now a director. Yeah. And O'Toole chose me from my photograph uh, <laughs> to play the banshee. Right. But this, my scenes, I was just out in the woods. <laughs> As this, you know, ethereal, right. disembodied uh, creature, and I only acted with Charles. I didn't right. act with Peter, so I, I don't even think that I met him. I he told me, and something that I just thought was funny is now that he doesn't drink, or he quit drinking by the time I I talked to him, and I said, "What's what's changed in your life?" He goes, "Well, I wake up in Paris, and I know how I got there." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, Into Invisible Light is in theaters right now uh, in Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. It will open wider across the country as we uh, in, in, the, in the coming weeks. Wondering, uh, what's next? You say you're working on another project right now. Are you working with Sheila on another project? No. No, no I'm working with uh, another group. Um, I don't want – because I really don't say really anything. know whether it will ever happen. As you know, when yeah. you're in development on something, you work for so long. But I'll just give you a little – Sure, just a little hint. Have you ever heard of Florence Lawrence? Yes. Florence Lawrence was the first – one of the first movie stars and she was Canadian. That's right. And she people was born don't know in Hamilton, her. Ontario. Yeah. So I'm working on a project that is a – it's actually an adaptation of a novel called The Biograph Girl. Yeah. But it's um, it's a fantasy reimagining of Florence's life that she did not die when she died, oh, but is discovered many years later. Well, she was all, she was a fascinating character because she was kind of an action star as well. I mean, she made movies in in the Arctic, and she made like it, it wasn't it wasn't just you know, uh, bedroom dramas and things that she no, made. She well, made... She was doing... I mean, she did upward of 70 films yeah. with D.W. Griffiths That's alone, right? right? Yeah. She was the first woman ever to own her own film company. And, and she was the first actor to with, demand with a marquee credits yeah. Yeah. on the films. In those days, people didn't... The actors were unknown. That's why how she was... No, that's why they called her the biograph Well, and, and they were. And it's kind of fascinating. They didn't want... Jennifer Dale on the marquee, the name Jennifer Dale, because then people would say, oh, I want Jennifer Dale. We got it. And you would become more famous and you'd have to pay them more. Exactly. And so they gave them nicknames, essentially. But they gave them to her. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, that's fascinating. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a little known slice of Canadian history yeah. uh, because she was a big star. I mean, there were so many, uh, you know, from 1920 to about 1928, there were these people that were giant stars like Carl Dane, who was a giant uh, uh, silent movie comedian, really popular, Rolls Royces, houses in the Hollywood Hills, all that sort of thing. And then when sound came in, his career oh, tor- yeah. was torpedoed yeah. and he ended up selling hot dogs in front of... MGM, the yeah. studio that he helped create, you know? So there are these fascinating stories, and she's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Florence was pre-Pickford. Everybody thinks that Pickford yeah. was like the, the big first right. Canadian star star from Movie Canada, star, yeah. but it was Florence who wow. was pre-Pickford. Well, I will certainly uh, keep my eyes open for that. I we will. Hope. I, I, I hope we'll so. Pray. Right now, though, you can see Jennifer Dale in a film called Into Invisible Light. It is in theaters, as I've said, in uh, Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. Uh, it is the story about a woman who gets a second chance in life and and begins to realize that there was a hole in her soul that that needed filling for a long time. Uh, it's a lovely film. It's been lovely to see you. Thank you very thank much you for coming so much, in. Richard. Uh, thank you for listening and thanks to Andre and Robert on the board. We'll talk to you again soon.